This is Stefan Neidenbach. Welcome back to the Americans for Science podcast. I now have a new co-host, David Neff. Hey, everyone. I'm David Neff, and, and it's a pleasure to be with my friend Stefan, and, and it's a pleasure to be with you guys today. Today, we're talking to Dr. Stephen Barrett, a retired psychiatrist who has achieved national renown as an author, editor, and consumer advocate, and runs the website quackwatch.com. Dr. Barrett, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm a retired psychiatrist. I got interested in uh, quackery more than 40 years ago when I read a few books about the government's struggle to get control over the patent medicine market and to deal with uh, cancer quackery and other things like that. I began talking to people, writing a little, and eventually um, developed an informal network that uh, evolved into several organizations. When I found that the uh, news media were not too interested in, in looking at quack things, I decided that I would have to write about them myself. And so I developed a, a sideline, medical editing and writing. And when the internet came along, I decided that was a good thing to be on. And I retired from psychiatry completely and have been essentially full time in um, internet activities and other investigations and writing for um, about 20 years. Now, um, Dr. Barrett, for the listeners who may not be aware, what exactly is quackery and why is it so dangerous? Well, I define uh, quackery as methods or uh, information that are promoted for alleged health reasons that don't make any sense and that have not been proven to work. It's a pretty broad definition. I'm interested in both methods and information. It could include products, services, and uh, ideas. What are some of those organizations you mentioned that you run? Well, the, what organizations? We started a local group in Pennsylvania that was very active for about five years called the Lehigh Valley Committee Against Health Fraud. And we heard from people all over the country and this led to the development of some organizations in California and eventually the National Council Against Self-Fraud. That functioned for, I guess, about 20 years. And then um, when the Internet came along, it didn't seem as important. It became inactivated and eventually dissolved. Interesting. Now, why do you think the media is not interested in covering quackery? That could be a whole book in itself. A lot of different factors. Number one, many times the media don't want to antagonize their advertisers. Well, maybe they don't want to upset their listeners. Um, that may seem strange in light of you know, all the bad news we see. But the kinds of things that I uh, talk about might hit the core beliefs of the audience. And media outlets tend not to want to do that. Their main function is to, is to service packages and their main object, packages for advertising, and their object is to have the biggest readership or, or uh, listening audience that they can. Uh, there are a few journalists left and a few media outlets that are willing to serve really for public service, but, but not a lot. And then even among some of them this morning at, at Consumer Reports on Health Newsletter, I was absolutely shocked at how ignorant they wrote. They, they wrote an article about the treatment of back pain. I was absolutely shocked at the, the ignorance displayed in the article. 
I, I don't understand how they could do something like that. They talked about if people have certain kinds of back pain, might be suitable to go to chiropractors, but they didn't say anything about what happens if you go to one. They talked about, in a very superficial way, they talked about manipulation has been demonstrated to do this or that, not very well, but they didn't say a word about what happens if you go to a chiropractor. You go to a chiropractor, uh, the chances are you're going to get mistreated. I mean, there's hard data that shows, for example, that lots of them will try to sign you up for months or even years of unnecessary treatment. They don't mention that. And I was absolutely shocked because they want to know better. It's funny you bring up consumer reports. We've been struggling with them ourselves recently on the on the GMO front because they've really bought into the whole minute amounts of pesticides are they find extremely dangerous and risky and they're promoting organic food and then you're mentioning them promoting chiropractors all of a sudden I'm curious do you have any other background on consumer reports did they go did they go wrong somewhere huh. well that's it I'm not sure how they're structured that's kind of a different department that's not medical stuff okay so that's that's something different yeah I think there are some you know People that have ideologies in consumer reports that, about organic foods and pesticides that go way back. I've never had any dealings with them. I've dealt a lot with the people that used to control the medical information, and they were good. Um, and there's still some of them are still good. They just don't get it on chiropractors. They don't get it on acupuncture. You're right. I don't think they get it on organic foods, and I don't think they get it on pesticides. And they've not. I, I don't think that they realize. What happens, it's not when they, when they advocate these things, they're giving credibility to people who are doing a lot of bad things, including um, anti-vaccination and so on. Consumer reports would be very strongly for vaccination, but its activities are supporting groups that are allied with the anti-vaccination groups. So it's pretty messy, and there's no way to communicate with them. You know? It's, a, it, it, it's essentially a closed system to the outside. I used to be, for 25 years, I was their consultant on quackery. Um, I served mostly as a volunteer, but at times I was hired to review articles, and I even wrote 14 articles for, I guess, 10 for the magazine and 4 for the newsletter. In those days, they were spot on and sharp as a pin in the, in the early 1990s, but there was a change of editor and a change of, of management, and they, the people who control the output, simply started ignoring me. I, I, it's distressing. Now, you mentioned that you were a psychiatrist for over 20 years. Can you describe, I guess, what your career was? What, what did you actually research? And also, what is the psychiatry behind quackery, and why are people so drawn to it? Well, you've asked me enough to cover a half a book, but... Uh, I'll take the last question first. Why are, there are probably at least half a dozen reasons why people are vulnerable. And people may have more than one vulnerability. And unfortunately, when some people look at the situation, they think it's one thing, don't realize that it's more complex. So what are the things? Well, you have, a lot of people are simply not suspicious enough. You know, we have a lot of suspicions in our society of government and so on. But a lot of people are not suspicious enough of what they see on the internet or what appears in the media. They're not suspicious enough of lots of information that they're getting. So that's, that's mainly simple ignorance. 
And if they're given the facts, which they may not look for, they will generally uh, understand um, what they ought to do. Then you have people who are desperate, and they may not listen to anybody. Somebody gives them a glimmer of hope, and of course the, the main groups you can identify are people who have terminal disease like cancer, but it also includes people who have curable cancers who feel desperate and shouldn't. Then you have people who are overweight. A lot of them feel desperate, and they try one thing after another, and they never stop. It doesn't make any difference. I've, I learned this when my first book came out, and it was about 40 years ago. There was a woman who was a head nurse at a hospital where I worked. And she came up to me one day and said, Dr. Barrett, I want you to know I was very disappointed with your book. I said, oh, really? Yeah. He says, I bought it because I wanted to look at the weight control chapter. And I looked at the list of all the things that you said were wrong. I didn't find any that I hadn't tried. In other words, she hoped that, that I would provide leads for more things she could try. And she was not stupid, but she just felt she had to try them all. But anyway, back to desperation. It doesn't seem to make any difference how many methods of weight control have been promoted, how many thousands of pills, potions, systems, products. makes no difference. The new one comes along, people try it. And I've not been able to figure that one out. So that's desperation. Then you have another group of people that's very interesting, is that people are too, who, are, who have too much self-confidence, and they think that if they look at all sides of an issue, they can decide where reality lies. In other words, if there's a controversy over, let's say, vaccination or some method uh, that's offered for treatment, they think they want to do is, they don't want to figure out who they should trust and then follow that person. They want to look at everything. And I guarantee you, nearly everybody who has this approach decides wrong gets the wrong answer. I've, I have had many, many people contact me and say, Dr. Barrett, I've been researching. And you know what? 100% of people who are researching, which means looking at the internet, come out with the wrong answer. No one who uses that terminology and contacts me has ever come out with the right answer. Why is that? Because if you think that looking at that all information might be created equally, You've already lost the battle. The proper way to investigate something is to figure out in advance who you can trust. I call those people information or places or groups, information anchors. And if you want to come out with the right answer, you have to have the right information anchors because there's nobody who knows. I mean, even the smartest doctor in the world is not going to be familiar with some of the things people want to know about. So you need information anchors. And who should they be? Well, the major health organizations are usually good. On health matters, the FDA is usually good. I, I'm not, there were some things I don't care for in terms of not giving enough regulatory attention and so on, but, but in terms of who you should trust, I would say the FDA is trustworthy, Federal Trade Commission, government agencies in general, but not the National Institutes of Health, Center for Complementary and Integrative Alternative Medicine, they keep changing their name. Used to be Consumer Reports, and I would say Consumer Reports is terrific on ordinary health things, but they're no longer reliable on quack matters. 
Um, I would say UC Berkeley Wellness is probably the best, one of the few that will address wacky things and come out with the right answer. What are the reasons? Then you have people who are alienated. They don't trust the government. So if somebody, they don't trust doctors. They don't trust drug companies. Um, they don't trust food companies. And so what they'll do is anyone that starts talking about don't trust your doctor, don't trust your food company, don't trust the government, and so, don't trust the medical profession, don't trust the AMA. Anyone who talks about it resonates with them. And then they believe whatever the person says, or whatever the source says. So it alienated gullible. And then the people who believe in magic, and, and, or who are gullible, and they're people who just simply are willing to believe in all kinds of strange things. I mean, and it's encouraged in our society. If you look at astrology, the majority of people in the United States, I think surveys have shown, give credibility to astrology. And our educational system has utterly failed to make a dent in how to look at information. Probably other reasons. The point is it's complex. So um, you mentioned that the education, the educational system is what failed. Why is that and what can we do to fix it? The educational system is not the only thing. I mean, all of the institutions that could help are not operating optimally. And what can we do to fix it? I don't think we can. I mean, uh, you know, I, I feel like the, the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike trying to stem a flow of you know, monstrous proportions. Obviously, you guys are helping, and there are lots of others who are. We're outnumbered and we're outgunned. And my, people say, well, who are you trying to reach? I'm trying to reach the people who want to live in the real world. I don't know how many of them there are. I reach a lot of them. I get a lot of thank yous. I get a lot of good questions. I don't know if, you know, I, I, I don't have a, an optimistic view of... Uh, what's going to happen in our society, not just with quackery, but just all kinds of decision-making. We're, we're a very troubled planet. Tell me more about chiropractors for a moment. I was reading recently, and you probably know the story a lot better than I do, about how, I guess, the American Medical Association or American doctors actually tried to fight back at one point, and then I guess there was a lawsuit of some type? In um, the AMA, the American Medical Association used to have a committee on quackery that was really potent but had its major focus on quackery, oh, I'm sorry, on, on chiropractic, and um, I think that was a mistake, but they should have had a broader focus. Uh, what happened was that the AMA began uh, trying to get other groups to work politically to undercut the political power of chiropractors, and chiropractors sued the AMA for antitrust. And the nature of chiropractic was not especially relevant to the suit, or at least the court decided that the only thing that was relevant is the fact that the AMA had a good reason um, didn't serve, was not a defense. The, the court said they're a licensed profession and you are trying to destroy them, so you have to stop. And the judges order, which we have posted on uh, our Chiropractic website, doesn't say you have to stop talking about them. What it said is, you have, and it, they sued the AMA and lots of other places, what it said is, you have to be, avoid activities intended to put them out of business. And so the, the AMA and, and the hospitals and other groups 
decided that they would be very cautious and um, discontinue certain kinds of actions. For example, a hospital could decide on a practitioner if a chiropractor applied for privileges, a hospital couldn't make an individual decision. But hospitals as a group could not decide, we don't want, couldn't set a standard and said, we don't want any chiropractors on our hospital staffs. Now, none of this had anything to do with stopping criticism of chiropractors. But um, the AMA made a policy decision, not just about chiropractors, but about quackery in general. It abolished its committee on quackery and made a policy decision that it simply was too expensive to go on trying to educate the public about quackery. It's not their responsibility. I introduced a resolution that got voted in the mid-70s that the AMA should reestablish its committee on quackery and take a broad approach. And to get a resolution passed, you introduce it at a local level, and then it goes to the state level, and then to the AMA to vote on if it gets that far. The president of the American Medical Association came to the reference committee meeting at the state level and spoke against the resolution. Can you believe that? I couldn't. It's unbelievable. The AMA administration didn't decided that it didn't want to get bruised again and um, didn't want to have a lot of legal expenses because it was a risk of suit. There really wasn't much risk, but there was some. And so they got out of the business of giving out information. Um, and so did most organizations. And many of the ones that were not close to the suit thought they couldn't talk about it anymore. And what happened is there was there ceased to be a central source of information about the subject. And what that meant is that a gradually developed um, general ignorance as to what chiropractors and other practitioners who do improper things do wrong. Now, some chiropractors are fine, but a lot of them, and maybe most of them, are not fine. But the source of, the fountainhead of information about that shut off. And who was left? Um, basically, the National Council Against Health Fraud was left, and me as part of them and also separate, and a few other people. I mean, there were a whole bunch of us, but only a few were putting out things for the general public. Even so, we had tremendous impact in the 1980s. But when the internet came along, the amount of negative information uh, became enormous. I'll be honest, before I discovered all of this myself, I was in a car accident about five or six years ago, and my own primary care physician referred me to a chiropractor. I was, it, was a, it was a very uncomfortable experience. I, you know, Because she referred it, I just kind of went along with it, but nothing ever really felt right, like hooking the electrical nodes up to me and the whole cracking thing. But then there was that other side of the physical therapy, which all felt kind of right. So I guess it's that weird blend of what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong that always... So there, like, there is that legitimate side. Like the physical therapy seemed like any other physical therapy. Well, so, one of the questions would be, what did the chiropractor try to get you to keep coming? Yeah, afterwards, he would... Yeah, he, he definitely talked about coming back for, what I guess, maintenance kind of stuff. Maintenance therapy has not... First of all, it doesn't make any sense. Secondly, it's not been proven to work. Third, guess what? It's never been tested. So you have tens of thousands of chiropractors promoting maintenance therapy. It's never been tested. 
not only is it senseless and expensive, so, I mean, that's chiropractic. And the fact that your doctor referred you violates what I would recommend. I don't think people should ever go to a chiropractor unless they've been medically diagnosed. The, the fact that your doctor sent you to a chiropractor may reflect him not knowing what to do. I don't know. There are some chiropractors who basically do the equivalent of physical therapy. And generally, if, what a chiropractor, if a chiropractor can help you, you'll just take a few visits. But I, I recommend that if people, uh, that people not go to chiropractors unless they've been appropriately medically diagnosed. And if they have muscular aches or tendonitis or uh, stiff joints or things like that, um, sports overuse injuries, then they go primarily to orthopedists and use physical therapists because they're, very less li they're much less likely to run into stuff that's useless. And what happened to you is you may have had some things that were appropriate, but you may have other things thrown in. And that's, what's, that's a big thing that's wrong, even with some of the relatively sensible chiropractors. They offer too much service that you don't need. I happen to believe that spinal manipulation can be very effective for certain types of acute back pain, but it doesn't take more than one or two. There's no data showing that there's any long-range advantage. But I know that, I mean, I, I, I learned from a journal how to manipulate my back. And some, maybe every few years I have a, a joint in my lower back. If I lift something when I shouldn't, that may hurt me, feels tender. I lie down, I put my toe behind my knee and I twist my, my leg and I can feel the tension in the muscle loosen and stretch. And if I can succeed in stretching it, I'm cured. And I know that some chiropractors do that, some osteopaths do that. It works. Research hasn't looked much at that, but they do too much that's not good. You go to a chiropractor, if you go to a chiropractor, he may pull down on your arm and tell you you need vitamins. Um, he may hook you up to a machine that, that tells you you need to take other dietary supplements. He may, um, you know, one reporter went to a guy and he put a potato on the reporter's chest, pulled his arm and said, oh, you shouldn't eat potatoes. I mean, this is chiropractic. We have all those kinds of reports uh, on, on chiropractic. People went to 5, 10, 15, 20 chiropractors. Same person and all the different things they encountered. Now, um, just give us a little bit of, of a background of the history of chiropractic. From what I understand, it was basically started when Mr. Palmer allegedly healed a person of deafness by manipulating his back. Well, that's the story, and I don't think anybody knows the extent to which that story is, is true. And it certainly doesn't form the basis for a profession. And Palmer concluded that doing something to the back can fix you all over the body, and a lot of different theories, and some chiropractors still believe that. I don't, I don't recall seeing any other reports in the scientific literature during my lifetime about other people who had their hearing restored by, by spinal manipulation. What is your opinion on physicians and hospitals offering complimentary, uh, a lot of them saying it's, it's, it's harmless if it helps the patient feel better. Uh, it's like when I see the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia offering acupuncture now, is it a good thing because it might keep more patients at, at that hospital instead of going to, a, going to a quack? Or is it harmful because it's promoting um, these procedures? That's a pretty complicated question. 
And the first thing I should point out is that there's no such thing as complementary medicine. That's a sales slogan. You can't define it. It's not a definite set of anything. It's they, the, the, the quacks would say it's, um, it's a combination of things that have been proven to work that is standard medicine plus the alternative things that we do. And, but the alternative things that are done in one place may not be the same ones as another place. And what percentage of them work? Very few. At the hospital, they take just a couple of things and they call themselves a center. And this is done for marketing purposes. And nobody knows whether anybody ever benefits from this approach. I would suspect that mostly they waste a lot of money. Can acupuncture do anything for children? I don't think so. There's certainly not a lot of good data. There's no data whatsoever that it can influence the course of any disease. I don't know why else you'd give it to somebody if it can't fix the disease. And furthermore, um, what takes place depends upon what the practitioners are doing. I mean, people talk about acupuncture. Do you know that it's useful when you go to a, a doctor to have a diagnosis? Do you know what would happen if, say, somebody with, I don't know, think of a condition, diabetes, went to a doctor and said, Doctor, do I have diabetes? What do you think the doctor would say? Yes. Okay? So if you took somebody and that person went to, let's say, 10 medical doctors, doctor would do a test and say, yeah, you have diabetes. Okay? You go to 10 acupuncturists and say, do I have anything wrong with me? How many different answers do you think you'll get? Probably at least 20. I was, that's very good. Yeah. Do you think any two will agree with each other? And then what kind of treatment will you get? Do you think any will offer the same treatment? I mean, my point is clear. If you go to an acupuncturist who does what I call traditional Chinese medicine type acupuncture, there's a 100% chance you'll be misdiagnosed because you'll be told there's something wrong with the energy flow of your meridians. And the treatment's based on the diagnosis. So you have almost a 100% chance of being mistreated. I mean, it's possible you can get something that you need, but not likely. So when people talk about acupuncture research, they're not talking about the majority of acupuncturists, they're talking about research that's done under medical supervision where there's medical diagnosis and very limited approaches that don't include, let's say, herbs. Most acupuncturists prescribe herbs. The research on acupuncture doesn't get into whether acupuncturists effectively prescribe herbs. So I don't know what acupuncturists do at the University of Pennsylvania. I suspect it's very different from acupuncturists who function in their offices. I'll tell you a personal experience. I went to a lecture. Acupuncturists have something they call pulse diagnosis. You listen to your pulse. Actually, they claim you have six pulses or 12 pulses, and they have all kinds of characteristics, which I find very difficult to memorize. I, I just remember wiry. But, but, um, so they listen to your pulse and they make diagnoses and prescribe herbs and acupuncture. So during the lecture, I raised my hand and I said, could you demonstrate pulse diagnosis if we come up? Oh, no, no, it's very complicated. I can't do that. At the end, I said it again. And the audience decided that's what they wanted. So at the end, the audience, about half of it, lined up 
and went to the sky and he took our pulse and he looked at our mouth, looked at our tongue. So he looks at my tongue and he says, you have congestion of the blood and stress. <laughs> so look, I'm a psychiatrist. I don't have a problem with stress. I have a huge tolerance for stress. True, I have stress. I mean, I, I do. I'm committed. I'm invested in what I do. I have certain amounts of stress. But in terms of the things that people normally worry about, I don't have financial stress. Um, I don't have, I mean, a lot of the ordinary stress of life, I don't have at all. And the ones that I have, I make for myself, and I'm not trying to avoid them. And I live very comfortably with my stress. So he was wrong about me being under stress that needed treatment. Congestion of the blood? Um, I was taking aspirin at the time. I was part of a, an experiment where doctors volunteered and half of them took aspirin and half of them got placebo. They were testing it to prevent heart disease and there were other reasons why I was taking it. But I was taking aspirin and my bleeding time was prolonged. People have draw blood and usually 10 or 20 seconds blood clots. Well, my blood would take about a minute or two. So I was partially anticoagulated, which means that's the opposite of congestion of the blood, which you can imagine. So he was wrong. Then the next woman, but this is what he does in his office all day long. The next woman behind me has her pulse taken. He says, oh, you have premature ver you have premature contractions. You should come to my office and get acupuncture and herbs. So I took her pulse, and normally when, if you take your pulse, it changes very slightly. It beats rhythmically, and then uh, when you breathe in and out, um, in and out have slightly different speeds. So for many people, I forget what it's called, but your pulse changes a little. She didn't even have that. Her pulse was the most regular pulse I've ever experienced. I mean, I took it for maybe a minute. She didn't have any premature beats. Or if she did, she certainly didn't have any that needed treatment. You don't treat. Somebody has a beat every two or three beats a minute, you don't treat that. That's not, that's not pathological. You know, two out of two, I didn't attempt to do the rest. But just an example of what, and this guy was senior person with 20 years experience and at his own office. I don't think people understand what they get into. And when someone says, like consumer reports, go to an acupuncturist, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what acupuncturists do. They know what the research shows. They don't have a very good understanding of it, but they don't know what acupuncturists do. And they don't care, because I pointed it out. You know, I, I stopped writing because you know, I, I began getting rude answers from some of the editors. So can you tell me, um if there's one biggest horror story you've heard from any of these different quacks, just one person that was really harmed by them? I'll try to think of one, but it may sound strange. That's not, I don't regard horror stories, I can think of a few now, I don't regard them as the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the way that quackery has infiltrated our society and is affecting our thinking, and huge amounts of billions of dollars are being wasted and where's the money going? And how does it affect people's beliefs toward vaccination, for example? You know, people, are, a lot of, there's, there's one, there's a doctor who sells products, and he has been warned a few times by the, that's Joe McCullough, you know, he sells a lot of products. He's been warned by the FDA about a number of things, and so he's 
very careful how he words things to try to stay out of trouble. He's one of the biggest funders. He takes a lot of money. And he gives a lot of the money. He gives, he's one of the biggest funders of anti-vaccination, of the main anti-vaccination organization. I'm more concerned about, about the economic aspects of quackery. But as far as horror stories, uh, let me think. I mean, I've, I've seen, I saw one woman who had a treated with breast cancer and went to, I can't remember who or what it was, but she went for quack treatment. And even when she was at the end, and I saw her a few days before she died, her lungs were full of fluid. Um, she finally had to go in the hospital. Um, she died a miserable death. And she had a cancer that was probably 100% curable when, when it was discovered. And there were a number of these. Then you have the, the, the kids. There are 20 of them are on the children's, uh, have a children's health care as a legal duty. Child Incorporated has 20 of them. I was looking this week at the website. 20 kids who, got, who died as a result of medical neglect. And it was started by Rita Swan, who was a Christian scientist. And the child got sick. I think he had meningitis. And she was a, a very devout Christian scientist. And she brought in the, brought in the healers. And they you know, talked about what you have to do when you have to get rid of bad thoughts. And, and the kid is slowly dying, and he died. And she caught on. And she started child to try to prevent this from happening. But when you think of quackery, you should be thinking of the fact that there are laws that say that if your child dies as a result, then not these exact words, but the effect, if your child dies as a result of your watching him die slowly and not getting medical attention because you believe that some religious healer is going to fix your kid, it's okay if you want to die yourself. But if your child dies as a result, you can't be prosecuted. And who's behind those laws? Christian science. So there are laws that, that are also a big problem. I know, I know one of the biggest issues in the United States is we, we do value our freedoms and individual rights. And I know they're able to kind of manipulate that into saying, well, it's our family's right to take medical care or not. But so yeah, I, that is definitely a seems to be an ongoing problem because they're, they're always screaming about rights and I'm always thinking well, what about the right of the, the child who can't make that informed decision? It's not just the child, the taxpayer, and it's the kid who the kid infects let's say a contagious disease vaccination isn't perfect so you have a kid with a contagious disease goes into a waiting room of a pediatrician may infect other kids or goes to school may infect other kids, some of whom are vaccinated so it's also the right to protect, vaccination is also about the right to protect the public from contagion. There, there are, and, you know, I'm a great, I'm a great believer in, in freedom, but you have to balance that against social welfare. I mean, it's happening, it took a long time, but, you know, people have a right to smoke. The question is, do they have a right to smoke next, sitting next to you? And it took a long time. But the laws now say that in a lot of places, people can smoke, but they can't smoke. They can't smoke next to other people. And that's a good thing. So there's a restriction. I mean, you, you have a right to free speech, but you can't yell fire in a theater if there's no fire. 
there are, there are a lot of examples where there is an apparent clash between, let's say, individual freedom and the public good. And in health, there are some issues that are difficult, but um, there are a lot that are not so difficult. As a teacher myself, I teach seventh grade history. You mentioned the educational system. Um, what what can I do in my classroom? Because we we a big part of Common Core is critical thinking and examining evidence. What are some of the things I can do in my classroom to kind of help? Well, you can talk about the scientific methods, how facts are determined, good sources of information, and none of those things will have any political fallout. Um, whether you can go beyond that or not, I don't know. You start talking about chiropractors, it's not within their experience, and you'll have a chiropractor complaining to the school board. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that's bad, but I don't know what I don't know what jives with their experience. You can talk about how to be critical about advertising on the internet. You can talk, talk about um, where you should go for information on the internet. I guess most of the kids are internet savvy. You could have an exercise where you say, "I want you to go to a, a website that talks about health. Find a web page that talks about health, and then tell me." whether you believe what it says. Well, try to figure out whether it's telling the truth or not. Well, go to a website that sells a product that's related to health. Again, I don't know what products would mean to kids, because most kids, I don't know if they take products. You can have them look at product claims, ad claims. You have to figure out what's relevant to their social and what's relevant to the kids' In that age, but you can point, you can talk about not everybody tells the truth. You can talk about chat groups, and when people talk about health experiences, I think it's possible that might not have happened. I mean, it's an interesting example. Donald Trump has said several times that when he was debating, somebody asked whether he and Carson and there's another fellow who was a doctor, they thought about Rand Paul what they thought about vaccination. And Carson said, well, it's a good thing. Uh, And Trump said, well, yeah, he said, but kids are getting too many of them. You know, I talked to somebody the other day, who's a mother, and her kid got autistic right after a vaccination. I'm compressing his words, but that was the basic idea. And you know what? It didn't happen. The conversation had not taken place. Okay? How do I know? Because he said the same things four years earlier. And there's a video that shows him saying it. So we have somebody like that. I don't know if this is relevant to kids, but you have somebody who tells a flat-out lie about a conversation he had. In addition to having the wrong conclusion, that's an entirely different story. He gave a flat-out lie about what it just happened. It didn't happen. Um, going back to the anti-vaccine quacks, I think it's important for everyone to know that correlation does not equal causation and that there is not a shred of evidence to suggest that vaccinations can even remotely be a cause of autism. You're certainly right, but that's a good example of what you might want to try to teach your kids. If I don't know whether this reasoning will carry over into adult life, but if two things happen, 
and you have to figure out what thing. If this happens and that happens, can we be sure that this caused that? I don't know whether you can, I mean, I'm sure you, they can learn it, whether they'll apply it. I don't know whether five years from now or 10 years from now they'll apply it, whether you can make it that meaningful. I don't really know how you influence what people think when they grow up. But I can tell you that the kinds of things that I write about have been systematically laundered out of textbooks. That's a very strange thing. I, I was uh, the author of a couple of chapters in a college textbook that I don't remember, but sold 100,000 copies or a million copies. It was very, very big. And there came a point when I was removed as an author, and they replaced me with somebody who criticized nothing. <laughs> so, and I spoke to the, the public, one of the editors and publishers, and they said, yeah, it's happening all over. I have one book that's still left. I don't think there's another book in all of textbookdom that has as much in it about quackery as my consumer health textbook. And I don't know whether it's going to continue because there aren't a lot of education, you know, graduate education courses don't teach that kind of material very much. They don't. I don't know why. It's not taught much. Um, my textbook is the last one left standing that's gone through nine editions. And I'm not going to do another edition because I, I'm getting too old to want to spend two years developing and redoing it. Whether my co-authors will carry on, I don't know. But the textbook situation is bad. The textbooks are not telling are not telling kids how to think in a discriminatory way, to, to think logically about the kinds of issues that we're talking about. Or if they do, they're they're not getting through. And it's not just the schools, though. Education is coming through the internet, what or through Facebook or through television. What are Americans learning? I have no research or view on what kids learn about health, because I don't watch television much. What do you think they're learning about guns? Is, is you shoot people, how many times a day does the average American see somebody shoot somebody? And now we're up in arms about, you know, some incidents where People are using guns. It's the result of 40 years of, of conditioning of our society that um, you go shoot people. That's our society. Yeah, from my own personal experience, I, I guess I'm, I'm a big believer in kind of nurture, and I just see a lot of it just being generational, that a, you know, a lot of kids are just kind of, a, just so much of it comes from their own parents. Especially now, you know, a lot of people like to talk about advertising on TV, but then I see, like, Students I have now don't actually see much advertising because it's all this, you know, on demand and Netflix, and um, so the advertising is obviously coming from different places now. But yeah, it's so it just seems there's just too many fronts, I guess. You know, we, we, we can, if we hit one area, they, they just get it from somewhere else. And well, the, the money is all, in terms of quackery, the money is yeah. it's all in one direction. If you can get, if you can fool people, you can sell them. And there's nobody that says you can make people smarter. You can make a lot of money. 
doesn't work that way. Um, in general, um, advertising is, it's not just advertising, but in general, information is primarily to sell stuff. There's too much of it. The people, and the people who have the power to influence public opinion tend not to be concerned about quackery. I mean, if I were on, I'll give you an example that's not quackery, because it's easier to talk about. If you turn on CNN, what do you hear? I'm going to be political, but it's really an example of what's wrong. If you turn on CNN, I don't think you can go for 30 minutes without hearing about Donald Trump. If I owned CNN and could control what it said, I would say to myself, what can I do so that this man doesn't get elected? I would not talk about equal time. I would say, what can I do to change public opinion? That's corruption. And it's more complicated when you look at how the media um, influences influence health ideas. But where's a media outlet that's trying to improve things? Not a lot. That's bad. And I don't know that that's going to change. There are people who have the power to move public opinion, and almost none of them are involved in the area of quackery. You have Bill Gates, who gave his money away, $30 billion, and he's the primary funder of vaccination in the world. He's given probably, certainly hundreds of billions, maybe billions of dollars to promote vaccination in third world countries. Guess what? There have been attempts made to try to get him to help some of us change public opinion in the United States. Blank wall, brick wall. All the money that's out there is just going out there to promote the beneficial stuff and nothing's being done about fighting uh, fighting the quackery, um, to, to use that terminology. Yeah, fighting anti-quackery, it's not, yeah. it's not a popular cause. And some years ago, I, I went to talk to the president of one of the largest foundations, and he didn't want to see me, but I sent some communication, and he finally decided he would. And I walked in, and we had an interesting conversation. And um, if you want to get funding from a foundation, you have to tell them what you're going to do, and in most cases, you have to lay out a plan where they can measure the impact of what you do and so on. And I went in and said, I can't apply that way. I said, you have to believe that I'm going to do something useful. I can't tell you in advance because I don't know what I'm going to run into. But here's the general idea of what I want to do. His reply was that, and I told him how four people um, in my local group in Pennsylvania had stopped a piece of legislation. Four people have stopped a piece of legislation where chiropractors were trying to get covered by Blue Shield. And they did it by getting a union to object to the bill. And it caught the chiropractors off guard and the bill was defeated. And they were kept out for 10 years. I talked about that. And this, I said, this is the kind of thing that I do. I look for vulnerabilities. And his answer was, you scare me. He says, nobody, no foundation will ever fund you. That's it. 
And I talked to my communication consultant. I said, why do you meet with me? He was and she said, he was scared of you. I said, what? He says, yeah, he thought you, you might be in a position to, to publicly criticize him. That's why he met with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no intention of doing that. But, you know, I occasionally come up with things that, that topple big companies or, or big things. Not a lot of them. I can tell you that there's one person who gave $3 million to James Randi many years ago when he started a foundation, which is terrific, James Randi Educational Foundation. There's a Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which has raised uh, tens of millions of dollars and has a center and a staff, and, and that's it. They're the only financially viable anti-quackery organizations in North America. And they're spread out over a lot of things, not just health. Whether there'll ever be another, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully we can uh, change that. It might, be, it might be a slow process. It probably will be, but hopefully we can. Um, I'll, I'll put in two plugs for myself then. Uh, one is I have a weekly newsletter. It's free. Uh, it comes by email. covers covers usually three or four topics a week. It takes about a minute to read. You try to keep up on some of the oddball news related to quackery, that, or the important news that might be of interest, and in many cases that you won't find anywhere else. The second thing is that one of the, uh, the companies that I criticized um, sued me, and I spent a fortune uh, pursuing the suit, and I had to spend a pretty good amount of money defending myself, and still have expenses ahead if anyone would like to um, read about that and um, help with my defense. That would be be appreciated. If you want to if you want to see the article right away, I have a very simple address. It's quackwatch.org forward slash t, like in terrible. <laughs> um, that's a shortcut, and um, you can read about the the problem and. It links to the lawsuit and so on. It's quackwatch.org org, uh, forward, forward slash T. Yeah. I, I'll know. I'll um, include that as a link when we get the podcast up up as well. If anybody would like to donate and help you out. That's just, that's to the article, but it, there's a link they can find. They go to the site, they'll find it. We have donor links to it. Okay. Excellent. <laughs>